You are listening to Humanities Unbound, a public humanities podcast produced by Taft Research Center, a center dedicated to excellence in humanities and social science research located at the University of Cincinnati. Taft Research Center is generously funded by the Charles Phelps Taft Memorial Fund. My name is Caitlin Lusher. I'm a graduate assistant at the Taft Research Center and host the Research Spotlight series for Humanities Unbound. The Research Spotlight series focuses on the current Taft Center Fellows. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Derek Brooms, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Brooms' research focuses on the educational experiences of black men and boys. Dr. Brooms, thank you for joining us here. So you are a Taft Center Fellow this year for 2019-2020. Uh, So I just want to ask you a few questions about your research. So uh, I see that your research primarily focuses on how black boys and men make meaning of their experiences regarding race and masculinity. So can you tell me a little bit more about the specifics of the project you're working on and why you chose this specific population to focus on and work with? Yes. So my project is looking at how a select group of black boys... uh, not only experience education, but their pathways to and through college. And so it's a longitudinal study that looks at uh, 20 young black men. I started interviewing them the summer or so early first year of college. And I have followed them through college graduation. Some of them are in or have just finished graduate school. Some of them are early career professionals and a few others are still persisting in college. And so what I'm really interested in as we think about race and gender and masculinity is how do they think about themselves at different points and junctures across their educational pathways. So what did they think about themselves in their kind of early years and just transitioning to college? What does it mean to be black and male and where they specifically came from, the neighborhoods, the family dynamics, et cetera? And then looking through their college experiences, so through that lens of what does it mean for them to be thinking about themselves as young black men in the college setting, trying to pursue some of the educational and personal goals that they set out for themselves. And because the project is longitudinal, then I'm really getting able to see in very real time what they're thinking and then compare that to where they were a year ago, two years ago, four years ago, or how what some of the things that they offered and thought about in those early years of college have manifested at least in these later adult years in terms of being middle 20s and later 20s and they're into a professional career. So, you know, part of what, what led me to this project is the narratives that are out here about young black boys and men. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we think about education discourse, we think about kind of popular discourse. One of the overwhelming messages that is that black boys don't care about school. Mm. And what I wanted to try to figure out, number one is, let me look at a group of young black boys who have matriculated to college. They were on their way or had just gotten there. So part of my work really looks at how do they think What did they do to get there? And that's literally due in terms of academic and educational effort. And then what supported them to get there? Mm 
right? Mm-hmm. So that we can try to identify some of the gaps in their schooling experiences they identify as potential traps or potential things that might undermine uh, or deny them educational opportunities. And then how do they make sense of that as they're then trying to navigate higher education? So a thrust of the project is about the prevailing narratives and really wanting to kind of trouble and challenge that to say that, you know, clearly those narratives might apply to some black men, young black boys, Mm -hmm. but they can't apply to all of them. And so as opposed to looking at this majority of students or the number of students who don't do well or who don't graduate college, what can we learn from the guys who do go, who achieve against the odds, who achieve despite of, who achieve and garner successes of their own accord, not what we say is success. And so that's really what's driving me is to really literally learn from their experiential knowledge what we can learn from young black men. Awesome. That sounds really fascinating. And honestly, something that I I think a lot more people need to know about. Um, so I have another question here. Uh, when people think of education, they typically think of it as the great equalizer, since students are, in theory, getting the same course content and they'll gain the skills and knowledge for different fields. Why does your research matter? Why should people care about how black boys and men go through high school and college? So in many ways, right, as you mentioned, the prevailing narrative is that if you just get a college degree, right, we're in this era of college for all. So that if you're a student in K through 12, you've got multiple individuals telling you, you got to go to college, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. And the reality is, is that that is a narrative that doesn't have a lot of teeth depending on which schools you go to. Mm -hmm. So that as one of the guys in my study says, yes, I was constantly told that I was supposed to go to college, go to college. I have no idea how to get there. Mm. So that if we're just following the message of people telling us that we should go to college, is that actually putting us in position to be prepared to do well once we get there? Because, as we know, there are very vast gaps between what we're asking students to do in secondary education and then what we're asking them to do in higher education. And so part of it is is to part of this you know, reason that research such as this matters is we need to just trouble and challenge this idea that everybody has to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the, you know, one of the guys in the study talks about his family didn't have any money. So he started looking at the military because he said, listen, I didn't like the military. I didn't necessarily want to go to the military, but I didn't know what other options I had. And so I'm looking at the military as an opportunity. I can get a job, and if I stay long enough, I can go to school, and I don't have to pay for it. Whereas what we've seen in recent reports over the past several years is that the student debt amount has just exponentially increased. So are we pushing a message to go to college, go to college, even when students can't literally afford it? And then what does that mean for how they might compromise a future when they're saddled with debt and they're not able to identify jobs that are well-paying, that helps pay up? So the the research matter because it gives us these kind of micro lenses into people's lives and how they're making decisions about what's attainable, what's accessible, how they're making sense of the messages prior to college, during college, and then how do they try to activate those once they get out of college as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that hits the nail on the head pretty well. <laughs> um, so uh, another follow-up question. So why not look at other settings or institutions that impact black boys and men like, say, the criminal justice system? 
So I have a different project. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that looks at that because to me that social institutions are very much critical to how we make sense of ourselves and our own possibilities. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it obviously matters to the environments that we navigate, the neighborhoods that we live in, the ones that we have to cross through, et cetera. So even as I, uh, as an example, even as I talk to these guys about their college experiences, I'm still asking them questions about what do you think about Trayvon Martin, mm. right? Because they're in college at the time that Trayvon Martin, who is 17, gets killed, never makes it to college. Mm -hmm. How do you make sense of young black men very much in your same age bracket of not having the opportunities that you have? And we don't have to be fatalistic about it. They're just other young black boys who don't go to college because they're connected to the <clears throat> criminal justice system in some kind of capacity um, where they don't have access to college going support, et cetera. So I would argue that my work, this education research supplements our understanding of social institutions and in the same time is very much in proximal distance or space to other social institutions such as criminal justice. So that I, I because I know the ways in which uh, black lives are uh, connected to various social institutions, as I mentioned, I have another project that looks at how people, how young black men and, and older men are making sense of racial profiling and stereotyping and the killing of black boys and men, uh, given the ways that we see it in its prominence and ongoing nature. Yeah, I like how you um, kind of uh, implicitly invoke uh, Black Lives Matter into this because I don't think you can really talk about, I mean, obviously I, I, um, I am a white cis woman. I, my experiences are very, very different, but I know that um, you cannot talk about black educational experiences without also considering other just other horrible like you know misconceptions that people have um about the black community and um with you can't talk about black lives matter you can't talk about that without also talking about black lives matter yeah i mean one of the, in the, in the one of the guys says something to the effect of don't act like those things that are happening outside of campus don't affect us on campus. Exactly. Right. So they're talking about, in specific reference to things like the killing of Walter Gray or the mm -hmm. shooting of Tamir Rice mm -hmm. or the killing of Michael Brown. And so mm -hmm. even though that's not me and it didn't happen to me personally, it still affects us. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then what we're asking questions about is if we have to grow up and live through those type of environments, if we have to navigate those types of experiences, is college still appealing even when with a college degree, if I'm Jonathan Farrell and I'm walking down the street in North Carolina and Charlotte mm -hmm. because I've been in a car accident mm -hmm. and I'm discombobulated and I knocked on the door and the person who answered the door called the police mm -hmm. and I'm relieved when the police show up until they shoot and kill me. Yep. So that a college degree doesn't save you. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, college uh, People aren't asking for your credentials when the police show up in, in respect to where did you go to college? One of the guys in my study says, you know, one of the things this is an indirect quote, but one of the practices that I've made is always have my two IDs out, mm -hmm. my driver's license and my school ID. And I'm hopeful that when the police, not if, when the police look at this school ID, 
hopefully they'll separate me from some other wrongdoing, mm-hmm. stereotypical individual who they may have had in mind who may have committed this crime. And I fit the description because I'm black and male and I'm driving a car or I'm in a car. So even as they're trying to navigate college and achieve their college or educational goals, they're still very conscientious to your point of the ways in which their lives matter only partially. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Depending on which social institution, which environment, which context they're in, because they know that their black maleness also can be used against them, even in college settings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sad truth. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So how do experiences of black boys and men also affect black girls and women and the black community at large? It's it's all connected and we also need to nuance it, right? So that mm-hmm. if we talk about the education, if, if I look specifically at the education of boys and men, black boys and men, then in many ways that contributes to black communities, right? Mm-hmm. And I use that in plural, right? Because there's mm-hmm. no necessarily homogeneous black community, but it also impacts and is relative to black girls and women. When we start thinking about the numbers and proportions of women and men, boys and girls going to college, attaining high school diplomas, college degrees, graduate degrees, et cetera. Um, And we know that if you look at it from a college by college standpoint, there are some colleges where black women outnumber black men three to one, Mm -hmm. four to one, five to one. And then there's others where there's a little bit more parity. I think one of the things we really have to be cautious of, and I'm very sensitive to this, is that our narratives and stories and, and retelling of experiences of young black boys and men should not ever dominate overpower, diminish, and undermine the experiences, lives of black girls and black women. And so I think about my research in a lot of ways as complementary to the larger body of research about black youth and their educational experiences. And I argue that if we can if we can improve the educational environments for young black boys, then that ought to give us some gravity and some weight in improving it for young black girls. If I'm just thinking about it through one racial identity group. Right. Um, and at the same time, if we if we say things such as we have to be mindful of the school to prison pipeline. Well, that's not just that's not single gendered. Right. There's a high percentage of young black girls and women who are connected to the prison industrial complex. Yes. And so we have to make sure that our research is not exclusionary in the sense that it overpowers and dominates a particular focus that we ought to offer to others. So one of the arguments that I make is that oftentimes young black girls and women's educational successes is actually used against them. Mm, Yeah, I've seen it. Right. Because we invoke things such as crisis about black boys. And that's often used in 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 comparison, if you will, to black girls who aren't in crisis. So if you're not in crisis, you don't need help. Ah. And I think that's problematic, right? I think that right. a crisis clearly requires attention, and we can. I, I still have critique and things to say, and we need to unpack about even the notion of crisis because crisis should be temporary. What we've seen is an educational crisis that has been centuries long. Right. Right. Ways in which blacks in general, both men and women, boys and girls, have been not denied education. And we know that manifests to today. So there are experiences where black women experience racism 
sexism, homophobia. I mean, every ism that you can think of that just because we're having a conversation around black boys and men doesn't mean it's at the exclusion of black girls and black women. And so we need to make sure that we are creating space for all of the stories to be told for black youth who are non-gender conforming, uh, for black youth who may not be Christian or Catholic. So we know that there's very particular experiences that black youth have who might uh, uh, identify as Muslim. Right. So that we have to think about all of these layers of our social identities in the ways that they intersect and interconnect and complicate our experiences. And I use complicate intentionally because it's not always negative. Right. right. It just means that um, my identities show up and matter in this space a little bit differently than somebody who maybe is heterosexual. Right. So I, I think that we have to hold space for all of those um, because I think the end goal for me is improving educational opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's not just for black boys. It just happens that my research primarily focuses on that. But I am also an advocate of uh, uh, quality educational opportunities and experiences, regardless of how we identify. Right. Yeah. I, know. Um, I, I like that you have this very intersectional approach because it's I mean, it's necessary, I think. Um, but actually, along that same vein, I have another question that you kind of were hinting at, but I want to sort of bring out more. Uh, how does your research help others in the black community who do not identify as cisgendered black men or, um, you know, assigned male at birth? Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's limited in some aspects because all of the guys that are in this study are heterosexual black boys, black men. And so it's limited in the aspect of that in that sexual identity, that gender expression performance, there's not the overlap. Right. So that although they might identify as black and male, their performances and expressions of their maleness looks different than somebody who identifies differently. And so I say it's limited in that aspect. And at the same time, it also shows the need for for more of the narratives and experiences to come to light. So that if, as an example, these guys who uh, participated and contributed to my study are sharing these experiences about their blackness and their maleness, then what does it mean for another individual who may also be black and male in a gendered identified sense, but in their sexuality expressed differently? Mm-hmm. So then that means that we've got to create space for them as well. So I think that, again, it's limited because there's, they don't, uh, they're not, those individuals are not in my study, but it's not exclusive of those individuals because I didn't go in saying I'm only looking for folks who identify. The, 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 the inclusion criteria were black and male and going to college. Mm-hmm. Now their gender expression, gender performance, I didn't really try to um, put any, you know, any, any, uh, expectations in that so that's that's where the limitations are in it but also the possibilities as well most people think of academics as sitting in an ivory tower writing as many articles as they can just to publish uh which has been an interesting debate i've seen on an academic twitter lately yes yes (laughs) um uh, but um i see that you also do other work outside of crosley tower in uc which is where the sociology uh department is housed i you do things like keynotes um community involvement um so can you talk a little bit about your advocacy and community work and how does your research relate to this work? It's, it's you know, so I, I'm in a very privileged position to be a faculty member 
And the main thrust of the privilege in the way that I'm thinking about it is access to information Mm. and opportunities. And so what I try to think about is how do I use my privilege for the betterment of the greater good? Um, Mm. And so that and being invited to be a keynote and I don't have to be a keynote being invited to be a speaker is an honor in terms of people thinking that you have something to come and say and contribute. But for me, it's also a responsibility. Mm. Right. So that. My teaching, research, and service have all been informed by the communities that I've been engaged in. And that was before I ever became a professor, during the process of graduate school, and even continued into my years as a professor. And so because my research is grounded in communities, because a lot of my uh, off-campus work is grounded in communities— I don't think about myself as not in the community. Mm. And so I want my research in many ways to speak to people in the community, even if they're not reading academic research, so that me being involved in the community is to bring the research voice, if you will, to the community and help them and support them in their self-advocacy or point them in direction of some resources to help them make their case or to use my privileged position to amplify their voices, potentially through research or through non-academic writing. Um, From a service standpoint, I also think that it's a critical role to play across institutions. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to speaking, if you will, if we kind of think about that as I come and give a talk, I also do a lot of trainings, right? So I'm working with K through 12 educators. I'm working with uh, higher education professionals and literally learning how to do the work to improve the educational environments for young black boys and black males, excuse me, males of color, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, In the specific sense, most of my invitations have revolved around that. Um, But then at the same time, for all students, how do we create better learning education environments so that our students thrive as opposed to survive? Um, And so for me, it's in a lot of the like I mentioned, community work that I do, but then also working with different uh, colleagues, constituencies, um, partners, community members across different educational institutions. So I think we, to to your question, I think we've got to situate and nestle ourselves across multiple domains because of our research is literally just to be published in a journal article that's going to sit on the shelf then we need to think hard and long about why we're doing the research. Um, I come from that, excuse me, that Du Bois ideology that our research ought to improve the lives of the people in the community. Right. And if our research isn't doing that, um, especially from a sociological standpoint, again, I'm not trying to speak for every discipline, Mm -hmm. but from a sociological standpoint, and then in particular, a black sociology standpoint, then I just firmly believe, even before I became a professor, that my work has to contribute to my communities. And so then research becomes another arena that I can do that. I absolutely agree. Um, and that's something I'm actually, I'm actually trying to do in my own research. So Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so it's good. To, Keep it up. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we it's, need it. It's good. To, it's so it's good to hear this from you know a professor who has been doing this for a lot longer than I have. Um, when I, by you know by which I mean research, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, just a couple final questions here. Uh, what do you think is the most important takeaway that you want people to learn from your research, whether your current research or your research corpus? And mm-hmm. this can be academics or yeah. just the general public. Uh, I'll answer this in a couple of different ways. Sure. So the first thing I'm thinking about as I 
process your question, I think about my education research. Mm. Um, And from an education research standpoint, I think the main thing that I just love to, that, because it's, I, I mean, I find it. I don't have to find it. It's there. It's apparent. It's are we willing to listen to it? Black boys are capable. Mm. Right. They're beyond capable. Right. They're they're exceptional in so many ways. Right. So I have this paper that's going to come out pretty soon is about uh, uh, the, the main title of the paper is we had to stick together. And it's talking about how these young boys navigate this particular neighborhood in going to school and coming home from school. And so one of the things that's just fascinating to me is that the social and cultural capital that they have to acquire and activate to understand the various nuances of the neighborhood effect Mm. just to get to and from school, some kind of way that brilliance doesn't get appreciated if they score, as an example, a 13 on the ACT. As an example, if they have a 2.2 GPA, because all too often we look at test scores and GPAs as a marker of success or as a marker of ability. And there's little to no appreciation or almost a dismissal of all of the other things that are going on in their lives that they had to deal with in addition to trying to prove, show and demonstrate their proficiency in school. So to, the first thing for me is that these guys are amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just humbled and honored to share parts of their story that they've shared with me. And I I do a lot where I'm I ask them to read it before I publish, you know, before I submit it or or you know because I want them uh, did I get it right? Right. Is this if I tell this story and I tell it this particular way is that aligned with what it is that you experienced? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just read your transcript and yeah, I I I typed I typed it correctly, but here's the story I constructed out of the experiences that you all share with me. I need you to read this and just give me some feedback. Tell me. And the beauty of being invested and connected with folks that you're doing research with, again, not on. Mm-hmm. people you're doing research with mm-hmm. is when they affirm what you have, right? So that I've had a couple of guys who I've sent the paper when it got published and and they said, hey, when's the next one coming out? Because they've read that one and they're excited. Hey, can we do a follow-up? They're asking me, can I follow-up study with them? <laughs> and to me, it's like, how, how much more honorable can it be than when you put work out into the world. And again, these guys are not in academic spaces anymore, uh, the ones that I'm specifically referring to here. And they're saying, we need your work. Mm-hmm. Hey, Doc, you you know, when y'all going to do a... F- so like to me, that's the reciprocal relationship of it. So that would be a second thing that I point out is not only their kind of brilliance and capabilities, but the importance of relationships. Mm-hmm. And so if we think about, again, I'm still in education, but if we're thinking about the things that matter to their educational successes, plural, one of the things that have shown up in every facet of the interviews that I've conducted and the conversations that I've had that weren't interviews, but they were conversations, was the importance of relationships. Um, and I think that in many ways, you know, folks in education, we need to really kind of honor that, recensor that, Think about that and figure out ways to refocus that. Um, because if you take away students, I couldn't be a professor. Absolutely. Period. Right. I might be a researcher, but I'm not a professor. 
And so being a professor means that a great bulk of my work is students, Mm -hmm. working with students. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are a few things that kind of percolated. When I think about the larger research corpus, uh, it's really geared towards the humanity of black folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I have research that looks at black and Latino males. So, but, but just the humanity of people at large or writ large. Um, and then as it speaks to the specific populations that, that I'm connected to and that I'm uh, speaking about in my research, it's really about their humanity. So that when I look at the testimony of a Darren Wilson and he refers to Michael Brown as an it, or a Hulk Hogan-like figure, or Mm -hmm. these other ways in which he's dehumanized, really. My research speaks to their humanity, um, is intended to uplift their humanity, is intended to respect their humanness. And so in doing so, as my colleague Roger Carey talks about then, is we have to think about mattering, not just in a static sense, but in a comprehensive sense, that they matter when they show up to school that they matter when they don't show up to school. They matter when they're entangled within the criminal justice system, that they matter when they complete whatever requirements they had to do because if it was connected. So wherever they are, whatever station of life that they're in, at the end of the day, they always matter. And because they matter, then their voices are valid. Their experiences are valid. We need to listen and learn and hear from them so that we can make our institutions, our organizations more humane places so that people can accomplish the things that they set out to accomplish. Absolutely. And and this, I mean, like as, as I said earlier, this is such a... A, a good moment for this. I mean, it's always, it's always, it's always a great moment yeah. to to talk about the humanity of people in general, but especially of you know like the black community because time and time again, as you were saying with like Darren Wilson, um, you know, the, with the way he described um, Michael Brown, Michael Brown uh, you know, that, that happens over and over mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this complete dehumanization. So. Yeah, I, I I think that is just a really really topped it off very well. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one final question. Um, so as a Taft Research Fellow, how has uh, your fellowship kind of? How do you think it will benefit your research in the future, and how has it already um, benefited you in some ways? So I'm still early. Right. right? right. Um, And so I'll speak about early experiences. And within that, I'm projecting to the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. One of the things, and and I've shared this with a couple of people across different conversations, and, and, and primarily sharing this to folks who are earlier in their careers as they're starting to navigate like that tenure track process and Mm. trying to figure out the push and the pull and the demands, et cetera, Um, or even working with graduate students as they're embarking on dissertation work, right? The larger kind of larger research project that looks very different than all the other things that you're asked to do in graduate school. I think one of the most beneficial things is time to think. Mm. I, I think that in many ways it's underappreciated if you've never had it, right? So I started off teaching at a community college. Time to think. I was thinking about what I was teaching. (laughs) I was thinking about the needs that my students shared with me and the different ways that our lives were connected and entangled and I didn't have a research expectation. Um, And, but then when you start talking about you need to write, Mm -hmm. 
I think people put a primacy on the literal process of typing words and you're, you've got a word document and it's a page and then it's two pages, et cetera. I don't think they understand, appreciate, or censor the thinking part of writing. And so, you know, early on, the, the TAF Fellowship has actually given me time to just look at my data or parts of a data, uh, parts of the data um, around a particular topical area and just think about it. And so I don't feel rushed because I, I, I got to fin- I got to do something in 30 minutes because I got class <laughs> and I got to transition or I, I better just write what I can today because the next four days I'm going to be teaching and I'm going to be grading papers. And so that kind of the tug and the pull of teaching and the demands of teaching doesn't exist in the same ways now. I still have students that I work with, but it's it's liberating in the sense of I can center much more of my attention, much more of my energy, much more of my effort in both the writing aspect of research and the thinking aspect of it. Um, obviously, then, too, it also provides time to read, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm reading all the time, but you're trying to fit it in along mm-hmm. with everything else that you're doing. Right. So that being on a research fellowship, I can print out an article and say, I can shut everything else down, push everything (laughs) else back. For the next hour, I'm just going to read this paper. And doing that percolates ideas and, you know, uh, has, you know, ideas that you're able to connect with other things that you're kind of working on. As I think about it, obviously, for the duration of the year, uh, my goal is to have made quite significant progress. I'm, this is I'm working on a book project, um, so I, my my goal is to make quite significant progress on the book, um, and so the year again, you know, allows me time to work on that. I'm not. I have a couple of articles that I'm working on, so it's not a, necessarily a singular focus, but it's a main focus. Uh, but my articles are also, you know, related to all of these things. So it's not I'm writing an article all the way on the right, and then I've got to come back to the left if I just use those as directions. So the the fellowship, I, I believe, I'll benefit in in that regard. And then the other kind of component of that is the other fellows as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know what that's going to look like. We're still in the kind of the formative process of figuring that out for right. ourselves. Uh, but I, I, I imagine, I anticipate, I'm hopeful that there's ways that I benefit through being in fellowship, literally, <laughs> in a fellow in fellowship, <laughs> uh, being in fellowship with some of my colleagues in different you know departments, but we're housed in the same center. So I'm looking forward to, to that as well. And I, and I know that being able to, as an example, knock on Layla's door, um, and say, I had this thought and I just wanted to bounce it off you and get feedback or have somebody listen to it. I know it'll matter. Right. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for being here today. And I look forward to all the awesome, awesome work that you were doing at the Taft Center. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for the interview. The music for Humanities Unbound is Reverie Small Theme and You'll Never Know Where You'll Wake Up both by Ghost and licensed by the Creative Commons. Humanities Unbound is hosted and executively produced by the Taft Research Center director, Dr. Amy Lind. Sean Keating Crawford is a producer and manager, and Caitlin Lusher is a producer and the editor for the podcast. Technical equipment and support are provided by the Student Technical Resources Center at the University of Cincinnati and the STRC director, Jay Sennard. 
Episode transcripts are transcribed by Carrie Eason and are available on the Taft Research Center website. Stay tuned for more episodes of Humanities Unbound.